Well, good morning. Take your Bible and turn it to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. Gospel of John, chapter 13. Now, as you find your way there, um, just a couple things by way of introduction. This morning, we want to begin a series examining some of, obviously not all of, we can't, but some of the final words of Jesus. And so each of the phrases, commands, or questions that we will examine together between now and Easter, and then even a couple weeks after Easter, will actually be from the final night of Jesus' life. So we're going to do this over about seven or eight weeks, and it's actually all taken place biblically on the final night of Jesus' life. And the reason for this really is simple. On the last night of Jesus' life, as he knew what awaited him, and as he intently looked down the barrel of his Father's will, he knew what was at stake. And knowing what was at stake, Jesus took full advantage of these final hours to prepare his disciples for his pending departure from them. And so literally what we see happening is we work, I mean, there's 21 chapters in John's gospel, and and at the beginning of chapter 13, we're introduced to this reality on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. So eight of the 21 chapters of the gospel of John are given to the final night of Jesus' life. There's great significance, not just to the events of the final night of Jesus' life, and and, and I mean, they get a lot of attention, and rightly so, Right? Jesus was crucified, he was died, and he was buried. These are absolutely matters of significance. But there's a lot of significance also in the things in which Jesus said on that final night. And so as we begin our examination of the night that Jesus was betrayed, we'll start in the upper room where Jesus was with all of his disciples the final time prior to his crucifixion. And it is at this point in John's gospel that Jesus moves to seeking to help his disciples understand what is at stake, to understand what is coming. He's done a lot of teaching. He's done a lot of leading. He's done a lot of referring even to the fact that he's set to be betrayed, that he's going to depart from them. But he really begins to narrow into exactly what he's talking about in terms of In some cases, the generalities that he spoke with prior to now. And so to demonstrate this, Jesus with his disciples sets a pattern or creates a model of service for them to follow by washing the disciples' feet. Many of us are probably familiar with the events of John chapter 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And Jesus even goes as far as to wash the feet of the one who will betray him to the hands of Roman soldiers in just a few short hours. And so if we were to take the time, and we can't for the sake of time, to read through John chapter 13, we'd find that after revealing that one of the men in the room would betray Jesus, he even revealed who that one was, Jesus gives his disciples a new command. When Jesus reveals that one in the room, that one is Judas, will betray him, Um, Judas leaves the room, 
And then Jesus continues to teach. He would give what we'll see this morning, a new command to his disciples. And this new command would serve as the radical distinction between Jesus' followers and the rest of the world. His command is a sense of belonging and community for the disciples. And so I'm going to start reading in uh, verse 31 of chapter 13. So if you're there, follow along with me as we look at a few verses. When he had gone out, so that's in reference to Judas leaving the upper room. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet I, excuse me, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, there are literally communities that exist in our world for everything. And perhaps you've been lucky enough to see, I was doing some looking over the course of this week for this, and I found that it originated back in 2019. I didn't realize it was that old. Um, But perhaps you've been lucky enough to see the Facebook advertisement that proves this reality of belonging and communities to to be true. Again, in 2019, Facebook ran an ad that demonstrated that Facebook was moving to a community-based focus. So whatever you were, whatever you were uh, engaged in, whatever you enjoyed, whatever your hobbies were, the goal of Facebook was to move to a, a platform, an arena, where whatever you enjoyed, whatever you identified with, you could be a part of that community right on Facebook. You would literally be known for being about the goals and the benefits of whatever community you belong to. And while Facebook ran this campaign as new and groundbreaking, the idea of belonging and identifying oneself with a particular community was anything but new. In fact, I would submit this morning that the the idea of identity by way of belonging goes all the way back to God in the early pages of his word, choosing Israel as a chosen nation and setting them apart through various identifiers. You see, what Facebook set out to do was not new, and it was not groundbreaking. You see, in that context of God choosing Israel, the world would know that the Jewish people belonged to God because of their identities and their communities, the things that they did and didn't do, the things that they partook of and did not partake of. And this reality did not change with Jesus. And Jesus called his disciples to identify with one another and with him and to share something together that was so drastic that the world would know them by the very presence of it. It would become known as the identifier of what demonstrated to the world that these people belonged to Jesus. And so this group that the disciples would belong to would be defined by something much different than the world that they lived in. There would be a few markers. I'm going to give you a couple this morning of what those identifiers are in this radical way of living. But it starts with a new commandment. 
And that's what you see, a new commandment I give to you. So what Jesus is doing in giving this new commandment to his disciples is leaving them with an expectation. And by the way, this is his expectation of obedience for them to the things that he calls them to. And this something that he would call them to, this expectation of obedience, would be a call to something so radical that it would literally change the world. But what's interesting about this commandment is that Jesus calls it new. He says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. But we know, I trust, and we've, we've touched on this in recent weeks, loving is not anything new for those who know the word of God. Loving is not new for anyone who's familiar with what God has said in his word and what God expects of people. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law. In Leviticus 19, we read that followers of God are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. So the call to love one another is literally as old as time itself. And so we have to understand there must be something different. There must be something um, unique. And don't, don't misunderstand me. It's not hidden, okay? It's not a mystery, Right, we're not going down that path. I'm going to reveal the secrets of a hidden mystery. Nope, we don't need to. You know why? Because the word of God is clear and plain. And it's easily understood. But there has to be something different about this commandment that Jesus gives to his disciples to love one another because they've already been told to love people and love their neighbors as themselves. They've been told to love people. So what makes this commandment new or unique? We see a little more detail, a little more by way of detail in terms of this commandment, in two chapters later in John chapter 15. I want to read a few verses for you. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You see, the desire of Jesus for his disciples following his departure is that they would love one another. And that the world would know that they belong to Jesus because they're obedient to his commands, primarily the command to love one another. And this commandment is considered new in that it has what R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on John calls a new object and a new measure. And the object of this new command is that of loving one another. Jesus' final commandment Love one another. This command to love one another would be quite noticeable to the communities around the believers. You see, there's a reality that the Jews had always loved who they wanted to love and hated who they wanted to hate based on how they interpreted the law of Moses. They could twist it. I mean, we see this with the Pharisees, right? There's a constant twisting and manipulation with the law that had been handed down to them to advance their purposes, their goals, and their agendas. 
So in this interpretation of the law of Moses by the Jews, they had freedom to do that which they wanted to do. And much like the world we live in today, the Jews tended to flock together based upon nationalities, geographical location, occupation, for example. There were literally things that would bring people together. This isn't new, right? We still see this reality today. But this command to love one another is important, I would submit, because left to ourselves, if we can be honest this morning, we really only love those who belong to the groups that we're a part of. We are naturally drawn to the people who are like us. And left to ourselves, we're probably going to be more in tune, more in step, and more regularly with those who are in the same groups that we're in. And so Jesus is calling believers to love one another. Again, this is just an, this is a reference to believers as a whole. Regardless of their common characteristics and regardless of their demographics or nationalities. And as believers love on the basis of obedience to Christ rather than personal feeling or desire, um, when this would transpire, when these things would be evident, those outside the believing community would take note. And I do think there's another thing that we have to address this morning. We talk about this command to love one another. As much as we're commanded to love one another, Jesus literally says, a new command that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, love one another. <clears throat> you can't make somebody love someone else. You can't do it. Even though we clearly see Jesus say, this is the expectation, this is what I'm calling to you, love, or calling you to do, love one another. Love will always flow out of a heart that's fixed upon Jesus. When our affections and our desires are in tune with Jesus, he works in our hearts in such a way that we have what we need to love one another. Because I'm going to tell you something, right? Yes, in our context, we live in rural southern Indiana, right? Most of us are very similar. But even in that, sometimes it's hard to love people. I'm not alone in saying this, right? Like everybody, everybody has tried to love somebody through a variety of reasons, for a variety of purposes, and it can be hard because sometimes people are hard. And it can be really easy left to ourselves to allow our hearts to become hard to the fact that God has said, love one another as I have loved you. This is true even for me. I'm not immune to this reality. And so there has to be this constant awareness of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how what he has done has accomplished the ability in us by faith in him to love one another. You cannot genuinely love one another apart from Jesus. But we're commanded to nonetheless because Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Paul would write in the letter to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, if you know, if you're familiar with that passage, he's specifically talking about Jews and Gentiles, okay? Even after Jesus came, and even after we've seen Jesus be crucified, died, buried, and rise three days later, there was still a hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles, there were all kind of expectations that Jews had. Well, if Gentiles want to believe in Jesus, and they got to do this. And if they do this, then they can believe in Jesus. And, and we're going to stay separated, and we're going to stay segregated and apart, and we're not going to really be together. And so Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying, no. Jesus literally abolished the dividing wall of hostility. He literally says he killed the hostility between varying people groups through his flesh. There is where you find the ability to love one another. You see, in Christ, the ability to love one another is possible regardless of background demographics or geographics. Again, to reference Kent's commentary on John, he says one of the reasons they succeeded, they being the church, the disciples after Jesus had commissioned them, is that mankind severed from one another, longing to come together, witnesses real love among the followers of Christ, and especially among believing Jews, the narrowest, most bigoted, most intolerant nation on the face of the earth. This was the reputation that the Jewish people had. They, they were not viewed as gracious, loving, kindful people. They were, in, 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 they were interested in the advancement of other people in God. And so what, 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 what's happening in John 13 and what Kent Hughes is ironing out for us here is that when these people would, 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 would see that Christ has broken down this dividing wall of hostility and they would love those whom they previously would not love for whatever concocted reason they could come up with, people would take notice. Whether that was fellow Jews or whether that was the areas where the gospel would go through the Gentiles. Genuine biblical love for one another is observable. It's obvious. And one thing I've alluded to this, one note that must be made, is that if we have not received genuine love, then you cannot produce genuine love. You cannot love as Christ calls believers to love if you have not understood that you are loved by Christ. And I don't mean a superficial, I'm loved by Christ, and, and, and I, and I want to be careful when I say that, right? Because I, I don't want to try to minimize anything. I don't want to minimize what people have been taught or what they've been brought under. But, but we have these fanciful, superficial ideas that Jesus, yes, the love of God is real, Okay? And we know what the scriptures say, right? God so loved what? The world that he gave his son Jesus. But, but Jesus himself says things like, you know you're my child when you're obedient to my commandments. You see, a proper understanding of the love of God, we talk about it transforming our hearts, it also cultivates, by way of that trans- transformation of our hearts, our desire to walk as Jesus calls us to walk. When we live in obedience to what Christ has called us to, living out the things that he's called us to because we understand what he's done. You see, that's why the cross is significant. We live in a world where people wear crosses on everything. 
Chances are there's a cross hanging in every house that's represented here somewhere. But sadly, in too many instances, a cross has become nothing more than a symbol. A cross has become nothing more than a declaration that in some capacity, in some way, in some interaction, I've heard about this Jesus. But the cross is so much more than that. The cross was the place where God demonstrated his love for mankind by crucifying his son. It's the place where the Son of God willingly laid down his life at the end of the night that we've begun to look at this morning. Why? For the purpose of killing the hostility, for abolishing the wall that existed between separated people groups. For one reason, the glory of his Father. And by God's grace, we somehow benefit from that. It was to the Father's glory that the Son would be crucified for the purpose of purchasing our redemption and breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. See, when 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 you focus on this reality, when you grow in your understanding of the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ, the commandment to love one another becomes less radical amongst believers. It's still radical in the world that we live in because the world's all kind of twisted in what love is and what love looks like and what it means to love one another. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John says, the same guy who wrote the gospel, John says, we love because he first loved us. You cannot love if you have not understood what it means to be biblically loved by Christ and in Christ. And this is especially important because, remember I told you, Kent Hughes talked about the object and he talked about the measure of God's expectation of loving for one another. You cannot love without understanding that Christ has loved you because it's the measure whereby he says you love one another. He didn't say, have some ushy-gushy, ooey feelings about one another. He didn't say, be nice. He didn't say be kind-hearted, not that we shouldn't be those things. But he said, love one another and do so following the example of how I have loved you. This is what Jesus says. You see, right away we have to understand you can't love as Jesus loved if you're not loved by Jesus in a biblical sense understanding that you are separated from the Father because of the presence of sin in your life, because all people are born in sin, therefore all people are separated from God, therefore all people are under the weight and judgment of the Father. But by trusting Jesus Christ for salvation, understanding the significance of the cross and what transpired there and what that accomplished and what that means, We begin to understand what it means when Jesus says, love as I have loved you. And we know that the love of Christ, what kind of love is it? It's sacrificial love. Christ demonstrates this love, this sacrificial love in in this very chapter in John 13. I mean, imagine, he knew that one in the midst would betray him. In just a few short hours, one of the people in their midst would hand Jesus over to the Roman soldiers and they would arrest Jesus, that they would wrongfully try him, that they would wrongfully convict him, that they would beat him, that they would mock him, 
that they would jab a crown of thorns into his head, that they would pierce his side with a spear, that they would drive nine-inch nails, between seven and nine-inch nails, through his wrists and through his feet. And in spite of all of that, in spite of Jesus knowing exactly what awaited him, in just a few hours, he washed the feet of Judas. He loved in spite of the upcoming events of Judas's betrayal. Why? Why does Christ love in spite of the events of Judas's betrayal? Why would Jesus, I mean, can you, can you imagine? I think we all understand the picture, right? When was the last time me, you, or somebody else went out of their way to serve somebody who was going to do harmful things to them? I don't know that I can make that claim. I don't know that that's transpired in my life. And to say, well, he does it because he's Jesus, and that's what Jesus came to do, it's true, but isn't it deeper than that? Is there more to it than that? Why did Jesus love in a sacrificial way even those who would be directly responsible for the, the, the excruciating events of just a few hours? We'll tell you why. Because in verse 31, Jesus says this, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus would sacrificially love Judas in spite of the events of his betrayal because the Father is glorified in the Son and the Son is being glorified by the Father. You see, the greatest demonstration of the glory of God is the resurrection that would follow the crucifixion that was at hand. Jesus could not rise from the dead if he was not first punished and absorb the weight of God's wrath, whereby making him, as he's completely sinful, absorbing the wrath of God, he's now uniquely qualified to be resurrected and demonstrate that he has overcome death, whereby sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. Christ's love for the disciples was set to be displayed when Jesus would be handed over to those who would come and arrest him. Perhaps you're familiar with the, 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 the arrest scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus very clearly says, I could stop all of this now. We could be done with this and not have to go through this right now. But he doesn't. Because his death was a demonstration of his love for those whom he'd called to love one another just as he had loved them. And so the onlooking world would see the glory of the Father when Jesus was crucified. It was to the Father's glory when the Roman centurion looked and uttered. This is a, there's a number of scenes in Scripture that I think what it would be like to have been there when it happened. And could you imagine being a Roman soldier and being a part of the process in the events of the night of Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. Could you imagine being there when he was crucified and he was suspended high above the earth? Could you imagine being there hearing Jesus say things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could you imagine being there hearing Jesus say things like, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. 
Could you imagine being there and hearing Jesus say things like, it is finished. And the Bible tells us that the sky turned dark and the earth shook. And the Roman centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. He was uniquely qualified to carry out the task of bringing glory to the Father by living a perfect, sinless life, by demonstrating what it looked like to sacrificially love people and then to willingly lay down his life, as we saw in John 15, for his friends. But it wasn't just the Father who would be glorified through the events of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was to the Father's glory, whoops, sorry, Not only would the Father be glorified, but the Son would be glorified. We know the account, right? Three days later, when the resurrection would prove to be the greatest demonstration of the Son's glory. You imagine that scene? The tomb is empty. These people seen and heard a man say that he was the king of the Jews, that he was the son of God, the very things that they tried him for and killed him for because he said these things and he spoke these realities and three days later they go to the tomb and he's gone and then they find out he's alive. Nobody stole his body. He wasn't, you know, not really dead when they put him in there. He was dead. That's why they pierced his side. We, there, we, there's, it's an undeniable historical fact that Jesus was dead when they took him off the cross. And can you imagine the glory of the sun? Let's look at another scene of scripture, right? When they go to the tomb and the stone is rolled away and the linen cloths are folded and Mary's looking for him and she says to the gardener, tell me where you've laid his body. We want to go get him. And after a series of, uh, a little bit of a conversation, Jesus, resurrected, looks at Mary and says, Mary, it's me. You want to talk about the glory of the sun? The empty tomb is the greatest manifestation. It's the, it's the proclamation and the verification that he was exactly who he said he was. And that he had accomplished exactly what he set out to accomplish. And that's why Paul could tell the church at Ephesus, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall. Nobody else could do it. But he could do it because he beat death. And so when Jesus says, love one another, this is the commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, you are to love one another. There's no denying that this is a sacrificial love that was demonstrated by Jesus for the purpose of glorifying his Father. And ultimately, the love that Christ has for his disciples and that he called his disciples and subsequent followers to is about the glory of the Father and the Son. Because when the onlooking world sees believers following the example of Christ, it makes a difference. And when a difference is made, the world takes note. And when the world takes note, lives are changed. And when lives are changed, God is glorified. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. May God help us to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. Father, there is no love like your love. And there is no demonstration of your love like the cross at Calvary. And so God, as the command of Jesus is handed down to love following his example, he says that new commandment to love as he has loved, 
We love our neighbors not as ourselves. We love our brothers as he has loved. We love our neighbors as he has loved. Father, stir our hearts today. Challenge us that we might be about your glory. That we might be about the glory of the Son. God, stir in our hearts that we might better understand and know what it means to love one another as Jesus has loved. Father, we pray that you would do these things ultimately for your glory. We know practically that there's good that comes from them, that the world is changed when your people, when the body of Jesus Christ lives out biblical faith and love. And God, we know that that makes a difference. But ultimately, God, your glory is what's at stake. So help us to be people who are fixated upon the manifestation of your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.